Hello and welcome to the Animation Essay Podcast. I'm Julia Smatslow and this month I'm talking to the last of this year's crop of outstanding CTIF guests, namely VFX expert David Prescott, who hails from South Africa but has spent most of his career in LA where he worked on some of recent history's most iconic VFX movies including Titanic, X-Men and Transformers. David has an amazing knack for turning his experience into advice you can actually use. So get out those moleskins and let's talk about imposter syndrome, the importance of showers, and why there's nothing left for the VFX industry to do. Just kidding. Well, not really. I really love the way that you crystallized your experience into these like nuggets of wisdom. But yeah, a lot of your a lot of your stories that I think we enjoyed was ones about lying, cheating, and just brute forcing your way into things. I, I wouldn't say cheating. Okay. Um, I I knew that there was <coughs> there was no industry here at the mm -hmm. time, right? There were I think there were two SGI boxes and a paint station at a company was called Magic Touch, a Dreamwave at the time. Mm. The house next door I think had two or three SGI workstations. That was it in the whole country. And they had a Quantel paint box. And then SABC had like a couple of paint boxes and things. That that was it. That was the entire industry. Okay. So And then a stop motion unit in the basement of SABF apparently. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they were well I built the stop motion thing. They hadn't done that before, but they had this education technology thing. So what what you ended up with was there, there really was no hope. There was nowhere to get in. There was no one making film. There was a couple people doing SABC items. Mm. you know news logos and shit so so the only way in really was to you had to get into one of these companies mm. and I had found through a, a creative um, I still remember his name that, that this creative placement agency for advertising her husband worked at this company that Hilda Travis worked at mm. and the only way I was going to get in and on a box was to say I used it because they because no one had experience on those machines there wasn't anybody there was almost no one in the world at the time who used them mm. so it wasn't just here there was no experience in the world using those paint boxes so I had to get in somehow and I by some grace had just seen these guys at a like a broadcast or technology expo out at Kyle Army and um, I just told them that, that these guys had taught me how to use it and I, I have no idea where that lie came from. It just was like in the interview and I just like, yeah, yeah. So it was a spontaneous decision? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And then I walked out and I went, I felt what so, I I felt so bad because it was like, what the hell have I done? And I was like, well, if I get the job, I will never lie on my resume again. I will just never <laughs> do it. like I a bargain with God? so bad, yeah. <laughs> And then I got the job, and the funny thing is, what I didn't say is, says I got the job, but I had to work free. Oh yeah. In my first three months, I so I went in and I said to him, uh, some just complete stupid young ego thing. I said okay, I'll work. Oh, I was like 20, 19. I just finished the army, twenty, so army and college, so 20, 21. And I said to him, I was like, okay, I'll come and work for free, but you're going to be forced to pay me some stage and then uh, so I did this stupid paint thing that I told the story about mm. and then I managed to solve this Alice in Wonderland commercial and figure out how they should shoot it and then I just walked into the office like hey you guys got to pay me now so just to recap that that story very very briefly you kind of said you could work on so I said I could you... paint on this this DP <clears throat> DP box mm. and um, they so I had been there for a couple of weeks like fetching coffee learning how to use the one inch two inch one inch tape machine 
And then they said, here's, it was five graphics that they needed painting for SABC or something. It was like a soccer shoe, a soccer ball, a cricket ball, that kind of thing. A dart. I remember the dart because that was the hardest thing to paint metal. And, um, and I could paint, I could illustrate. I was a brilliant airbrush artist. And I had considered going home and just airbrushing it and scanning mm. it in somehow. <laughs> just be like, yeah, I did it. But, um, and so I struggled in, I spent, I, I went home on the Friday when everybody was going home, I was like, say goodbye. And I, I drove around the corner <laughs> and I watched all the cars leave. And when I realized the entire company had left, I drove back in and I spent the entire weekend, I didn't sleep once, spent the entire weekend trying to figure out the software and how to paint, to paint those five graphics. Mm. And, you know, early hours of Monday morning had finally figured it out enough that I think I banged all five of them out in like an hour at the end. So I went from never having touched a paintbrush digitally never having used software to doing these to learning the entire package and whatever over the weekend and then on Monday go going home to shower and then basically coming back and waiting for people to be in then just kind of trying to saunter in all very relaxed like oh yeah no, I just came in yesterday of course I also didn't realize that the files had timestamps on them <laughs> you know did, did anybody ever come I back to you no I don't think they did you know I kind of respect I, what you did <laughs> I told the story like 10 years later right. after I'd left I'd been I'd been in the states and I was back here on vacation or something and I told the founders of the company that story and they they hadn't heard or known it well you had that that key shower so you probably got away with it yeah so I got away <laughs> with it and I had to struggle through Monday and finally went home on Monday mm. afternoon I love I love that story because I think Possibly particularly for women. I mean, there's research that shows that, that uh, women are less keen to fake it till they make it and less keen to say, okay, now you pay me or now you pay me properly or whatever. I read is. a study on this recently mm. on, on how women are just, men are so much yeah. easier to go in and go, I'm worth this whenever much money. You, whenever you hear these, these kinds of stories about like, yeah. I said I did this and I couldn't do it, but I pulled it off somehow. It's right. always a man. It's usually a man telling the story. Yeah. And I, you know, I, I, I was embarrassed about that story for the longest time. I still kind of am because it was just so brazen. Yeah, and, but that's um, a word that kind of seems to describe a lot of your career or how you kind I, of. I do, I've tried to. Forward, yeah. You know, the one thing I didn't say yesterday in the talk either is is I do have this thing that it's often better to ask for forgiveness than permission. I agree. Yeah. And so I don't know if that comes off as brazen or whatever, but they. You know, you tell these stories with a lot of fun and memory, and this, but they're not really that where you're living through that, <laughs> right? I didn't realize what I was the doing. The time is like, here's another fine mess you've gotten us into. I was just so scared I was going to get fired yeah. from this job that wasn't paying me. Um, <laughs> you no do mistake. sometimes hear the opposite story, and people are less vocal about it, but people who go, I can do it, and then they don't do it, and they just don't get work again. <laughs> right, and that's it's what I was afraid fun. about. I didn't know if mm -hmm. I could. I just knew this was the only shot I had. I, I've done things in my career where I have taken a job on and gone, I have no idea how I'm going to do this, but I know I'm going to be able to figure it out. Right. Yeah. That's a different thing. But that was with confidence and yeah. experience and whatever. That instance was not that. That was, mm -hmm. I had one shot. You know, there was no backup plan. Was, I was just going to go home and never let them speak to me again. I was just gonna go hide. You said about um, recognizing the feeling of fear, but then also knowing later on in your career, knowing that you could figure it out, brings us to one of my favorite other points of yours in the talk, which was that, um, like see imposter syndrome as an ally. Because yeah. 
if you... The imposter syndrome is something that only <clears throat> recently I started paying attention to. I mean, within the last few months. Really? Um, and then when I gave it some thought, I kind of replayed my career. And I realized that there were these moments and that's what I was doing. I, I hadn't thought of it as the imposter syndrome, but there were these times in my career where I just kind of got comfortable and I was now, I'm not going to say so good at my job, now. but I was now capable of my position. Mm -hmm. And at each one of those moments, I wouldn't say I got bored or anything, but I was like, okay, what's the next challenge? And I would take on the next challenge. And in those moments, I would have all these waves of self-doubt and I can't do it and that guy's better than me and what the hell am I doing in this industry? I'm a total imposter, I shouldn't be here. And then I would figure out that position and that role and that task and then I would get comfortable again. And so just recently when someone was explaining to me how much of an imposter they felt in the industry, I, I just kind of went home that evening and I gave it a lot of thought and I just started to kind of replay my career back and realized that I had done that not consciously. but. I hadn't thought of it as this imposter syndrome, mm. but I know that consciously I have gone, I'm comfortable, I'm happy, I can totally, I can do this job for the rest of my life, what's next? Yeah. And then try to... I don't to, feel like an imposter anymore, something right. must be wrong. <laughs> and then try to level up again. Mm. And so that imposter syndrome is just a good way to describe these kind of peaks or, or, yeah. or these climbs in my career where I've climbed and I've been really happy and comfortable and I've plateaued and then I've said, okay, it's time to go again. And so I think if you identify that just about everybody feels that way, they yeah, all feel I think like it's, imposters. It's really common and, and because it's not so much spoken about, we don't realize everybody's going through it, but it reminded me of another, I can't remember whose quote it was, but it was the reason I once quit a job where it said, make sure you're never the smartest person in the room. Yeah. And if, if you ever feel like you, not the smartest, but if you ever feel like you're kind of getting something that other people aren't getting, that means you can't learn from them and then it's time to move on. Yeah, but then there is also that side of, of is that time to mentor then and put back into yeah. it, right? Yeah. So I do think that a lot of our industry is, is all about the me mm. and people don't put it back in. And that's everybody's personal choice. I just, you know, one of the bullet points in there is find people who will invest their time and yes, appreciate how valuable people's time is. And so I know the people that have invested personal time in me beyond that where they're just getting the job done, mm. where they've actually come and spent time with me or they've, been, they've, they've really pushed me. And I've always tried to appreciate that and, and also then, you know, pay it back. Yes, I, I, as you were saying, you said time is the most valuable resource in this it industry. It is. I think it's the most valuable resource for anybody, anywhere. Because anywhere. It's the one know? thing you can't make more of. Like every, right. every human it's being always gets about like, hours a day. So. You know, time balance or life yeah. balance. I noticed that um, one bullet point that was maybe conspicuously absent from your talk compared to previous people that I've spoken to is you didn't really um, put an emphasis on a work-life balance. <laughs> you seem to be someone who was just go, go, go. You had that line about I, I, you, when you wake up in Africa, you run. Yeah, so I yeah. I wanted to do this so badly since mm. a little kid. And it's interesting, I had a couple of conversations. I had a conversation with someone the other night. They, they left school at the same time as me and they went to Europe and they traveled for a year and then they did that for a year. And I've always regretted not doing that. I do regret that in my 20s and 30s, there was nothing more important than work to me. Absolutely nothing. 
I sacrificed a ridiculous amount of personal relationships, friends, everything as a result. And it's not something I'm proud of. And so work-life balance, I don't know that I buy that. I think work is part of life. And if that's what you want your balance to be, then that's, that's what you do. But you can't complain about it, right? So I wish I had done things differently, but I can't complain about it because I made those decisions consciously. Now I've got to So you feel there has been a trade-off though? It wasn't oh, without a doubt. Right? No, without a doubt. I, I traded off a lot of life experience and stuff that now as you get older and when you try to do things, it hurts. Um, <laughs> that, so that maybe I'm, more time doing Pilates. <laughs> right. That I, I do wish I had done, but I've also been a person who's incredibly adventurous and I've done a bunch of crazy stuff as well because I do believe in trying to leave this world with life experience and just having a bunch of fun. There's another talk I have which is on alternate places to find inspiration. Mm. And that's about going out and having life experience. Because I do believe that if we're creative and everything, you can't you know, go to Google for inspiration. So from that aspect, I do go to festivals. I do go out there. I do have that balance. But interest, and I love those things, but interestingly, it's a way to expand myself for my career again. So now, you know, I have got to a point where, you know, it's such a stereotypical thing, right? My dad's greatest regret was he didn't spend more time with us, mm. you know, and, and I don't want to be that. So, so you, you do have kids? I have a grandson that we're raising. My wife has, has a grandson, so we're, we're helping to raise him. I and mean, he's a fantastic young man and he's wonderful and he's mm. amazing and I want to spend more time with him. Yeah. Um, one of your other lessons that I think um, speaks to how you can you can find that passion in your work was was work for goosebumps, which I just absolutely love that idea. Yeah, if that is something I've had since since the beginning of my career. I've always said that you work for goosebumps, mm. and for the longest time I always said, oh, if you work for goosebumps, you don't need money. And then at some point in my career, I was like, hang on, I'm really good at this. <laughs> that guy's earning more money than me. I'm better than him or her. I should earn more money. <laughs> and I started really paying attention to what people were earning and realized that I'd worked a huge chunk of my career for only goosebumps. And, and yeah, something else those, that's endemic to this industry. Yeah, you don't, you know, nobody's going to pay you just because. You have to ask for that. Yeah, and if that, they see you're enjoying it, they'll probably yeah. be like, let's take off at zero and see if you'll keep doing it. Right, and so, so the goosebumps thing, I, for the longest time, in the early part of the industry, when I first moved to the States, you know, people were still like, oh, those guys are geniuses and doing Titanic and that. We had no idea what we were doing. We invented that stuff as we went. And, we, and, the, and so there was an amazing amount of, you know, we had MIT scientists and guys who put rockets on Mars and stuff like that working for us because we needed super smart people. And I wasn't that. And also, it's, it sounds very much as if James Cameron kind of likes to surround himself with those people because he's actually in it for the science and the... He does. I think, That's yeah, I think he and his brother and that have definitely this, they, they definitely get off on that kind of thing. And there was, you know, digital domain was a, nowadays dot com and Silicon Valley and that you'd call it a disruptor. Mm. Right? But digital domain was out there to, to rip the rug out from everybody's feet and, and do things a different way and kind of be these, these bad boys and stuff. So, so there was that aspect of it, but, but what I realized, there was, there was this kind of peak moment in visual effects for me where you went, if you, you went to work every morning afraid because you really didn't know what you were going to do, but you left work every day with goosebumps. Yeah. And so I kind of always thought that that was like the perfect balance. You went in a little antsy 
but you knew you had all these amazing people around you and you'd now solved enough problems that you knew what this team was capable of. And that was like peak visual effects for me. Where and that would have been around X-Men time? or Yeah, it was probably around then. It was probably like the late 90s, early 2000s that I think it was peak visual effects. I think by the time we had done like Day After Tomorrow, and then by the time Benjamin Buttons was done, I remember looking at Benjamin Buttons. I didn't work on it, but it was done in our studio. And I remember looking at that going, okay, there's nothing left to do. <laughs> you said that in your talk, and I thought, I thought it was an interesting kind of challenge to the, to the industry. To there's nothing your left. Own. There's nothing left? No. Do you think that's... There isn't a movie that, I could, that you could make me afraid of making. Is that, so is that what it is? Budget, I mean, and, I was time trying is, to think, budget is, and time is the only constraint. So if you have a look at Avatar, when I was in mm. digital domain in, in the mid-90s, Avatar was out. We, we were working on it. We yeah. were re doing research Amazing. on it. We had t-shirts and everything. Um, so so we, we, we could not do it. There was, we couldn't pull it off. There was no way. There was absolutely no way to do it. And, uh, and, and you can't say that now. But so, would, you, would you say that maybe VFX has reached a place where if you can imagine it, you can put it on a screen? Yeah. But maybe there's a place to go where they can put things in, in a format that you haven't imagined yet. Like that's a different thing, right? So, you're, right? so that's yeah. a different thing. That's a different so industry. Talking I'm talking about visual effects yeah. for film. Okay. There's nothing left to do. <laughs> and I know it's a bold statement. You, we, you know, if you have a look at like the new way Wetter is using their new lighting system, it is amazing. And it is an amazing jump in technology in the industry, and it will make it better, without a doubt. And, you know, a lot of this deep machine learning stuff that, like, Digital Domain was doing on Thanos and stuff like that, it is amazing, and it's a major jump. But if you have a look at Gollum, if you have a look at Alita, if you have a look at all of this work, it is truly outstanding and mind-boggling and photoreal, and look at Jungle Book and Lion King and stuff like that, right? There is nothing left that you can't do. But that doesn't mean you can't use the the craft and the technology and everything creatively. So so it's still an amazing industry. It's still wonderful. It's still amazing to be part of filmmaking crew. What we're doing now is we're inventing better ways to do stuff we have done before. I like the um, way that you, you framed that as a kind of challenge to us here because we'll sometimes say, but we're just in South Africa and we don't necessarily have the resources that other people have. People will, you can just get it done now. You can, you know, they have this little thing with the students making yeah, stop motion sorry. stuff on their phones and things like, there you go. Yeah, as you were saying, like there's more technology in your smartphone than in all the companies in South yeah, Africa. Yeah, so I just see that as this amazing creative enabler. And I think that yeah. the stories, animation even, the, the animation, the complexity of animation stories that you can now do that we couldn't do 15 years ago. So on one side, you go through, there's nothing really left to do, to, but now we can play with it because mm. now we know how to do it. And yeah. so that, that then becomes really exciting. Yeah, I, I think that um, talks very much to what Peter Ramsey was saying about Spider-Verse and how they yeah. really concentrated on form and um, kind of nodding to to the form and then inventing tools to exactly for that purpose of the that's exactly right and so so those are exciting another kind of in um, a middle ground between what you were saying about don't let the, like don't let the technology drive your creativity you had another point about um, if you want to be an artist go to France and cut your ear off <laughs> and yeah. I thought there's like a middle ground I know, between people hate these, that 
A lot of people don't like that. They're because a lot they of like people they really want to be artists, but they're not. But I think there's Sorry, something. That's it. So my, my, a professor in art school told me that, and okay. I've held it forever because it reminds me that I'm getting paid for this. Yeah. And I always see true, like, fine art is your own personal expression. It's the expression of your life story. It's the expression of something you want to tell. And you never know if people are going to like it or not, right? We can't. We don't have that luxury. We have to create something that people like. Yeah. And so therein, you lose that, am I an artist? You're artistic, you're creative, you're talented, you've got great aesthetic. All of these things mm. you have, and you couldn't do this job without those. But your job is to create commercial art. Yeah. And, and I think and a, so, a lot of us like who you know, are artistic struggle to come down out of the clouds and just make that, especially in South Africa, you have to make it happen yourself. Everybody's a producer here as well as whatever they are. Right. No, so I agree. Really and it's it's not meant to be like <clears> this. And in a way, it is a bit of a buzzkill to, yeah. to tell people this, but it's there's nothing wrong with it. It's, it's, I think for young artists entering the industry, it is better to know that and understand it than spend five years learning that the hard way. The other thing that, you know, one of the biggest things when you start supervising groups of young artists is walking away from their desk and knowing you just crushed them and going, I don't care, I have 50 other people to see before I leave tonight. And you always try and be complimentary. You always try and build the artists and spend time with them, etc. But there you know, are- Do you go for the positivity sandwich? Like, I know. Compliments we described it as the shit sandwich. Oh, yeah, <laughs> that's a much better um, name. <laughs> so, yeah, I have. It, I think it's so, so. So yes, I too do that. I try to do that. But the sooner they realize that this is not personal. We appreciate you. We love you. We need you. All these things. But I just don't like that color blue. That's it's something they have to figure out for themselves. To work, right? Separating themselves. So from I've found this whole thing of like, if you want to be an artist, do it on your own time, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. People get to that realization that this wasn't personal, faster, mm. and and so I use that line to try and explain that the feedback we're about to give you or the director's about to give you is not personal. Mm. This is their vision, and our job is to put that vision on the screen for them, right? So. So the positivity thing, you know, I wear my sleeve when I'm on a show, when I've been on shows, I wear myself on my sleeve a lot. And, and that means good days are great and bad days are shitty. So for the most part on the front end of a show, there's a lot of building relationships and people learning your style and you learning their style and all of this kind of stuff and it takes time. And then you get into that kind of middle of production and you've got time to do the, the positivity sandwich. You're like, wow, this is really cool, but let's do this. And hey, don't forget that is cool. And, you move on. On the show I did, last show I did with Peter Ramsey, I <laughs> I received a little bit of flack because I called the entire crew into the screening room. There was like 250. And I said, okay, it's time to put our big boy pants on <laughs> because here we go. I'm going to be here 15 hours a day. I am crazy busy. That's not meant to make it like, oh, woe is me. But you must understand that not all reviews are going to be fantastic and super warm and fuzzy. And you're not allowed to get upset with me. I'm sorry. Like, we will still have fun dailies. We will still have fun moments. But please understand mm. that this, we're in the last four months of delivering this movie that we've been on for five years. I don't have time or the bandwidth to do the sound of Jenny. Yeah. I, liked, I'm, I can't remember if it was one of your points or if it came out of the questions, but the fact that you said like one of your hard yards and 
was was um, figuring out how to inspire people rather than kind of instructing them. And I think like, I, I mean, I struggle with that as well. I tend to think like delegation is like communism. It's a nice idea, but it rarely works. Yeah, it is. The, the, so, and, and I like the fact that you actually hired a consultant, I think you said to yeah, help I you did. figure it out. Yeah, because I, I wasn't getting it right. Yeah, it's, it's hard to go from being this, you know, person who's doing all this amazing stuff on the box and all of these things, and then having to get that out of other people. Mm because otherwise you just end up at work at three in the morning doing it yourself and that doesn't inspire people, it just kills them. That's not your job. Your job is to get people to be as good as you or better. You know? what's, what's the hardest project that you've ever worked on in terms of getting, That's tough because the, the So yeah, so I was gonna say the hardest production could be the work was hard but the people were amazing or the work was easy but the people were a nightmare. And I think um, interpersonal people's situations where you were just working with either a dynamic that wasn't working or whatever is always the hardest thing. Someone that kind of stays with you. Yeah, so so there's that. And then there's those shows that were incredibly hard, but you pulled it off yeah. and you were incredibly proud of it. And then there's those shows you worked on that just, you're embarrassed to have them on your showroom. <laughs> so there's so there's different, there's many different projects from different sides. You had that kind of scary story about Transformers when you were still delivering shots as people were buying tickets for the Yeah, tickets. so the, the release weekend, I had got, I think like on Wednesday night, we'd been to like the cast and crew of the premiere or something like that. And then walking out, Michael Bay said to me, he's like, hey, so those, there was, I think there was three shots. And uh, hey, so I want to do another version. I'm like, you know, for a release like tomorrow right and he's like yeah it's fine we can get it out we have nine hours we can get it out or something like that and so i spent the weekend just uh sending off new versions all weekend they'd be like okay hey, we're releasing that one and so i think i was done and it was a, an idea for the week came up with the idea for the shot with like three weeks to go and it was the very very last shot in the movie that when starscream disappears off into mm. the thing that shot was con conceived with like three weeks to go um and so yeah so the whole weekend i think we delivered I, I like, I, I, for some reason I remember the number nine, but I don't know if that was like nine total finals over the last couple of weeks or if it was, on that weekend I think we released four or five different versions over that weekend of that one shot. And it went off into, they were like, they were like supposedly like, like, I heard and I never confirmed this, but there were nine different versions in theaters that That's weekend. That's so funny. In a way, it's kind of comforting that that sort of crap happens even at that highest level of the industry. Yeah, you just don't like, tell anybody, right? It's, it's interesting also that like, um, at those high levels of the industry, one of the things that, I mean, one of the main things that they get right over all that time isn't the technology or it isn't the team structure, it's it's the timeline. Like at Pixar, they've realized how much time needs to be put into story, for instance. And I think here we just struggle to still get that amount of resources into the front end of the project. Yeah. So figuring out. I 100% I agree with that. I always wanted to work on an animated feature and I was I went to Pixar and interviewed there on Bugs Life to do some crowd stuff. And I, I was on a show at Digital Domain, I couldn't leave it. And so I, I never went, but I remember very, very, very vividly thinking like, wow, there is so much to figure out how to get an animated feature movie working that really that's all our job's gonna be. There's no <laughs> time to do cool stuff. Right. And I think that that was part of the reason I turned the job down and when I, years later, was thinking about leaving Digital Domain, 
and I was kind of like, I want to go try something else. I've always wanted to do feature animation. I'd like mm. to have a go. Then I got a call to go and have a look at uh, Rise of the Guardians. Mm. And I went there and I remember walking out of there thinking clearly like, okay, the animation industry has figured out how to make it. That means there's more money left over to have fun with them and make better visuals. And that was the case. And so that is what has allowed Spider-Man to happen, right? Because you know how to make an animated movie now, right? It, it doesn't mean it's easy, but, but the technology's in place, the production pipelines are in place, producers have done enough movies, we know how much time we need for story, we, we try to know how much time we need. And so... And the monetization is like all mature as well. Right, exactly. And so now, you know, the effects team has a budget. You can experiment with different looks like Spider-Man. You can do other things. So all of that money just in trying to get it made has now moved into the creative look and everything. And that is now, you know, in the early days of animation, it was just so amazing to see 3D animation happening, right? Well, now we're seeing new forms of 3D animation and that's exciting again. And so that I think is the great thing with film and animation and the whole point of kind of visual storytelling is that it will always progress. I really do believe that. It will always get better. It will always get more dynamic. It will always be able to find new ways to tell different stories. That's crazy exciting. So that's what, that's what gets you up in the morning. Is yeah, that I what makes, so. you, makes you afraid at the beginning of the day? I don't know that it makes me afraid. <laughs> it, it makes me... It makes me um, gives you goosebumps at the end of it. Yeah, I think so. I, I, I went through a wobble few years ago where I kind of became a little disillusioned with the industry and that and I realized it wasn't was it when the whole industry was going through a wobble around the no, life of pie time <laughs> no it was my place within it right and I realized that was when I tried to move my career and maybe that was a, is one of those kind of imposter syndrome moments where after Guardians I was like I could do that again I kind of want to try something else. I wanted to push myself. I really liked the idea of becoming kind of creative executive. Right. But I had so much to learn. And so I set off to try and try and find new opportunities that would push me into that realm. And, and at first I was like, oh, I'm never going to be able to do this. No one will give me the opportunity. Why would you give me the opportunity? And again, the imposter and I struggled for a bit, and then once I, I kind of got through this one kind of consulting job I did with Double Negative on helping to set up their feature animation studio, I was like, yeah, 20 something years of experience of doing this does pay off. Yeah, and that is you actually, actually know, know what you're talking about. Yeah, there actually is worth a worthwhile dollar amount. But again, what happened was I then realized that I had to really change the way I work because. I was used to making these big, massive commitments to directors and things for their movies, knowing that I was going to be responsible at the end of the day to deliver that. And I was willing to take that responsibility. Right. And now I was consulting with companies and, and giving them advice, but I wasn't going to have to live with it if it went wrong. That sounds like a win-win situation. For no, you. <laughs> that put more pressure on me okay. because I didn't want to leave behind bad advice. Because you can't actually make good on that. Right, and I wouldn't be there to fix it. And that felt like that was a guilt thing. It was mm. like, how could I make sure my price is perfect? Yeah. And so that was another learning phase on how could I do this in such a way. And so I learned a ton again. And then I became a junior executive and now kind of a, 
an exec, I guess, in a weird way. And so that that moment of, again, of, Jesus, should I do this? Am I worthy of this? Am I this, that, the other? So I, I went through that again. Just the, this is, we're talking about the last few years of my career. Mm. And I, you know, I'm really so happy doing what I'm doing. I love this thing I'm doing of working with studios and, and being this creative above a lot of the senior creatives, the VFX soups and that, and finding ways to inspire them and finding ways to make the movies better. And and I miss being on a project and having my project, mm. as it were, but this is the next phase. This is when you kind of give back. Yeah. Feed into the, feed into the next phase. Yeah, generation. but you know what's weird is I, I kind of have this thing, people like, so what are your hours? I'm like 24 seven. I never stop working for I get Sunday. That but for the first time in my life, I have no guilt not being at work. That's it from David Prescott and me, Julia Smatslow. Before I leave you, uh, we have an appeal this month. We are currently running the fourth edition of Draw for Life, our pro bono drawing program for underprivileged teens. And this year we are running a little short of tablets. So if you have an old one to donate or even sell to us at a good price, please hit us up on the ASA Facebook page or email marketing at animationessay.org. Thanks for listening.